Father, we stand here today in your presence with our testimony. Christ alone has justified us and washed us clean by the power of his blood. His word, which was spoken in the beginning, and thereby out of nothing the world was created, so spoke into the formless void of our heart and its judgment and transgression and sin under the wrath of God and made us new, caused a new life, a new creation to be born, calling the dead forth to rise in the name of Jesus Christ unto resurrection life in him. We thank you, Lord. Now as you have formed us and shaped us according to your purpose and promise in the gospel that you would continue to do so so that we may look more like Jesus Christ. May the proclamation of your word today equip and encourage and convict the church that we might be more presentable and holy still, that spots and blemishes of lingering sin and doubt and unbelief, misunderstanding, and that which easily besets would be washed away by the water of the word as it is proclaimed this day. Lord, and if there are any lost in the hearing of this proclamation, we pray that the convicting word of Christ would touch the hearts of those in their transgressions and sins and cut them to the heart that they may, might turn, repent, and believe and join us in the sweet fellowship of the saints purchased by the blood of Christ, lifting up your name, singing praises before the throne of grace and proclaiming to the world there is hope in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. What a great gift and privilege it is to gather in the name of Jesus and to open up his scriptures to consider today. Would you do so with me by turning to Genesis 48 and let us continue? We just have a few chapters left in this great first book of the Bible. And we for some time have considered the life story of Jacob, which is coming to a close. He will die shortly and we see certain things, priorities in his life. The confession that has endured in his soul, even coming to the fore and being proclaimed all the more boldly, even in his waning years. This is a testimony in death. That's the title of our message today that we read of today. That is the profession of faith by a saint who, though sick and on his deathbed, nevertheless boldly and clearly is proclaiming the truths that are stronger than the grave. Testimony in death. Would that all of us approaching death's door would have a faith and a confidence in Christ the way Jacob had. Jacob looked forward to his Messiah who would come from his own lineage. We have received Jesus Christ in our hearts who came in the fullness of time. And, and so when we die, we like Jacob have hope in Christ, but our hope is stronger still if it could be said, now that we realize so much more of God's covenant purposes coming past coming to pass in time. The aim of this morning's message is to behold the remarkable testimony of faith featured in Jacob's greatest trial, you could say, that is the trial of his soon coming death. With that introduction and when you're, with your heart standing in reverence before the word of God, would you rise as you're able and let us consider the scriptures in our hearing today. This is Genesis 48, 1 through 16. Here is the word of God. After this, Jacob was told, Behold, your father is ill. He took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you, for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in, this, in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Padan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? 
Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The Lord before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel has redeemed me from all evil, who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Joseph is told, Behold, your father is ill, in verse 1. Not only this, but much like his father, Isaac of old, in his waning years, his eyes have grown dim with age. He's nearly blind, we see it in verse 10. And it will be just a short time, in just a short time, he will succumb to the grave, pass on from this life into the next. Jacob's eyes are dim with age. As he approaches death's door at 147 years, however, the eyes of his faith see clearly, perhaps as clearly as ever, or maybe more so. He is able, through the eyes of faith, that is to say, or so to speak, to see beyond the grave. This, his spiritual perception, only growing sharper with age. However sad, our Jacob leaves his family and the reader with this noble testimony in the latter chapters of Genesis. And however sad the patriarch's death may seem, he has learned that it will certainly not negate or nullify the promises of God. His concern, perhaps his chief concern as he approaches death's door, is how the covenant will continue. And thus the theme of this blessing that he places upon his grandchildren in this moment, particularly to Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. On the contrary, that is, as if, if one were to assume that death would stand in the way of the promises of God, on the contrary, this testimony of abiding hope will not only outlive Jacob, but will prove itself immortal. The purposes of God cannot be killed. The plan of God and His salvation purposes through the covenant generation will endure, in spite all odds, defying even death itself unto, unto Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, in His resurrection, defied death, rose again, and thus fulfilled every last condition of the covenant, making these words of Jacob not empty, but full in his finished work on Calvary. Every generation of believers clings to this revelation of hope, even today, that through the seed of Abraham, that there will be the promised fulfillment of God's purposes in Jacob's legacy. The fulfillment of Jacob's legacy of faith will in fact be sealed and satisfied in the death of a future covenant son. Death is no threat to the covenant. In fact, death is required for the covenant inasmuch as a sacrifice must die in our place. These themes of faith and salvation in spite of death foreshadow. They speak of future grace of Calvary in Jesus Christ. We think of our day and our own experience and perhaps you've buried a loved one at a, certain, at a point in your own life, attended a funeral of someone who is important are precious to you. You may relate to this looming threat of death in a very personal way. Many are caught off guard by the looming horizon of death and its weight upon the soul. It's a heavy and inescapable reminder of the consequences of sin, of the wages of transgressing God's law. That's where death comes from in the first place. But against this ordinary and all-too-common backdrop, that is the reality of death that comes for us all, 
the testimony of Jacob's waning faith shines all the brighter. And you may know a believer who has died in Christ and experienced their testimony in a similar way. Um, I remember uh, recently there have been those who have died, and I remember that perhaps it was the last day. Uh, some of you know Evan's uh, aunt and uncle, Bonnie and Paul, and uh, Paul passed away recently or uh, in the not-too-distant past. And I remember seeing a video, I still have it on my phone, I think Marissa sent it to me, of him worshiping the Lord on oxygen in a wheelchair just hours before he passed away. What an incredible testimony. Against the backdrop of the waning years of his life, the testimony of his faith in God, as strong as it ever was, and perhaps even stronger, what a powerful witness. Reminds us of the miracle in Jacob's own heart that shines all the brighter. Even though he is sick, his eyes are dim with age. He's 147 years, and he soon will pass away. Perhaps Jacob's greatest moments, in fact, are featured in our text today. As the walls of death are closing in, the gates of glory open to receive this forefather of the faith. As the walls of death are closing in, the gates of glory swing open to receive this forefather of the faith. And for you too, if you are in Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing. The closing of death's door in this life throws open the celestial gates of glory to the next, if we know Jesus Christ. And what a glorious reminder our passage is, and even the occasion of death in our experience of these realities. Jacob professes a noble testimony in his last days. That's a heading for our text today, a noble testimony in the face of death. We see this in three ways, perhaps. One through four, profession. Let us consider Jacob's profession. Five through 11, Jacob's estate or his inheritance. And then 12 through 16, Jacob's legacy, the lineage that will continue beyond him. Profession, what he professes to believe, the confidence of his soul, his confession of faith. Secondly, his estate, that which he bequeaths or gives or grants by way of inheritance to his surviving heirs. And then finally, his legacy, what he will be remembered and known for in the future. First of all, possession or profession, excuse me, one through four, 48 again. After this, Jacob was told, behold, your father is ill. Joseph was told, excuse me. So he, Joseph, he took with him his two sons. Kids, what are the names of Joseph's sons? Remind us. Joseph's two sons, anyone know? Ephraim and oh, very good, Judah, thank you. Uh, Manasseh and Ephraim are Joseph's two sons. It might have uh, appeared as a curious detail to you that the tribes of Israel include among them Ephraim and Manasseh. Why is that? I thought they were just Jacob's sons that were the tribes of Israel. Well, in a way that's true, and this passage explains why Ephraim and Manasseh are included in those tribes of Jacob. It was told to Jacob, verse uh, 2, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, and you'll notice Jacob and Israel, two names for the same guy, as you recall, are used interchangeably in this text. So Israel summoned his strength, that is Jacob, and sat up in bed. So his eyes light up, so to speak, even though he can barely see. He growls a bit of strength, even though he's sick and 147. And Jacob said to Joseph, now listen, this is the profession. This is the noble testimony in the face of death. This is where Jacob finds his assurance at almost 150 years old in a foreign land under the thumb in some sense, or at least at the mercy of a Pharaoh, the land of the promise far. He'll never return there alive. His bones, however, will go. And here he is with the last breaths in him, professing the following, verse 4, and said to me, excuse me, 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan, and bless me, and said to me, Behold, I make you fruitful and multi I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Perhaps the hardest time in all his life to believe these things, nevertheless, are the crystal clear profession of this saint as he approaches death's door. Turn back with me to chapter 28. Where is Luz? Well, Luz is the same area as Bethel. We're reminded of this on two occasions, at least in the course of Genesis, chapter 28 and 35. Do us well to review briefly what happened at this location. Remember verse 10, Genesis 28, Jacob had left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, 
And we will learn in the course of these verses how important this place is. It is the gate of heaven, the house of God. We'll be named Bethel in this area surround or this area where the city of Luz is located. So taking one of the stones of that place, you'll recall this, this is the course the vision of Jacob's ladder. He put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep, verse 12. And he, Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. The top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said. So Jacob did not have the written word of God in his hand. However, he had the spoken word of God in his experience. These words were later written down by Moses for our benefit. So, but nevertheless, Jacob lived his life according to the word of God. And on his dying day, it was this truth, this foundation, this profession, this statement of faith that guided him into the next life. And here we hear the Lord. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give you and, and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you till I have done what I have promised you. The Lord will bring Jacob back to the land in the form of his bones, traveling to the cave at Machpelah to be buried with his ancestors upon the request when he dies. And the Lord keeps him through the course of his life, and Jacob recognizes this and professes as much even when he is laying sick in his deathbed. Verse 16, continuing in Genesis 28, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. There was a time when the faithless, naive, and sinful Jacob did not realize that every step he took was on ground that was formed and fashioned and had been spoken into being by his Lord, by his God, by the sovereign creator. At least he didn't have an awareness of that and the fear of that and the personal connection to that God that he ought. But his life and his heart changed at Luz. And at Bethel, that moment of awakening was so profound that Jacob was likely redeemed in this moment. Perhaps at Genesis 28, this is where Jacob could say, I am born again. The old Jacob has gone that tricked my brother that was sinfully led by the flesh to break God's law for the purpose of selfish gain. That old Jacob is gone. Now the new Jacob stands shaking before the revelation of the Yahweh God of heaven and earth, who alone can build a bridge between his holy presence and a sinner such as me. And in him and in those redeeming angels is somehow hope for my salvation. Truly, I was in this place and did not realize it was the house of God. He was afraid, 17, and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So kids, you remember what he did with that pillar rock, or that stone that he was sleeping on? He set it up for a pillar and took some oil, poured it out, and he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. So there's our reference. Luz and Bethel. Was this a life-changing moment for Jacob? It sure was. And evidence of the life-changing power of God through his word revealed to his covenant son continues all the way through his life till who knows how long later, decades and decades upon his deathbed, he recalls this moment with crystal clarity. Turn with me to chapter 35. This covenant at Bethel we just read about, it gives us the background, the context. In spite of age, sickness, and failing eyesight, Jacob's convictions are grounded in God's revelation to him. And his memory of Bethel remains crystal clear even in his waning years. This extraordinary vision has remained with him until this moment in Egypt where he needs it perhaps most of all. It leads us to an application question or two. How clearly do you remember your baptism as one example application? Young people, you're familiar with the interview before you are baptized, if you've been baptized. There's a question I try to never fail to ask, which is, are, will you remember this day your whole life? There's an exhortation I give. Do not forget this moment of your baptism, because at this moment is symbolized the powerful awakening of your soul to the reality of your sin, the reality of your Savior, and the fact that in this water ceremony is pictured 
your sins washed away. The old you has died. Now you're a new person. You come out of that water representing resurrection. You pass through the waters of judgment, the waters that would otherwise rightly drown you. Now through Jesus Christ, your ark of salvation, you pass safely through. Do you remember that moment? And will you remember that moment on your dying day, saints? Some of you came to Christ later in life. You had awareness of your sin. And somehow, through the preaching of the gospel, in one way or another, your mind was triggered to realize, wait, I am under the wrath and condemnation of God, and only in the blood of Jesus Christ is the consequences of my sin dealt with on Calvary when he died on the cross. And only in him is safe passage unto glory eternal. And that, saints, is your Genesis 28, your Luz, your Bethel, your latter vision moment, if you will. That is the moment to cling to, to remember, so that your dying day, you would have a noble testimony in the face of death. I am his and he is mine. He's covenanted with me. And I remember how Jesus has saved me. And I remember how he has revealed to me his word. And I personally relate to the saving work of Jesus Christ, knowing that I was once a sinner and now have been washed by his cleansing blood. Bethel renewal. In Genesis 35, Jacob takes his whole family back to this place. Remember in 28 where we just read, he was a single guy. But now he's married, now he has a bunch of kids, and there's problems in the family. 35.1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. So he does. There's problems, as I say, including idolatry in the household. Jacob says, verse 3, Let us arise, go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was there in Shechem. And they journeyed. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to where? Luz, that is Bethel. And once again, the Lord speaks. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be called your name. This is where he gets that name change. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your body. It is from these revelations that Jacob is quoting on his deathbed in chapter 48. And God went up from him, an ascension event, in that place where he had spoken to him with him. And Jacob once again does what? Sets up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it, poured oil on it. Twice God has revealed himself to his son at Bethel Luz. Twice Jacob has commemorated that moment with a memorial stone setting up a pillar. Twice Jacob has poured out an offering of thankfulness to the Lord who has revealed himself to him. And a third stone is erected shortly following. They journey a little while from Bethel after some distance from Ephrath, or still from distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor with her second son. You remember Rachel, the favored wife. She had born Joseph, now pregnant with Benjamin. She goes into labor but the labor takes her life. Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It was a pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on, pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eber. So three moments of significance, all marked by pillars. And these come back to mind for Jacob as he makes his profession on his dying, in, his, uh, in these moments of his deathbed. He remembers chapter 28, that latter vision where the door of heaven opens and heaven's staircase touches earth at his feet. Yahweh stands above it, proclaims to him his word, and these ministering angels ascend and descend upon him, so to speak. He remembers the Bethel renewal at 35, 9 through 15. Here, the words of Jacob are first uttered, or here, these words that Jacob utters in chapter 48 were first given to him, at least in this form. He is citing the very promises of God that he had received at Luz, at Bethel. The context of this renewal includes amazing grace, repentance from family, idolatry, and evil, even the trial of death, which will shortly follow. That is to say, Jacob, God knowing full well that Rachel would soon die, 
in his loving kindness, renewed the covenant and revealed himself to Jacob so that he might have faith that even though the beloved bride's life will be required of her not long beyond this point at love's, nevertheless, you can trust the covenant God. And so that message, that testimony of promises stronger than death, which is what that third pillar represents, I suggest, promises of God are stronger than death that Jacob set up just outside Bethlehem. That pillar reminded Jacob that God's word and his promises to me will carry me through death. They carried me through the death of Rachel. They will carry me through my own death. God's word and death. Jacob's last words and testimony illustrate and exemplify the surpassing peace, peace stronger than death that we have spoken of recently from Psalm 121. The God who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. That is to say, God is not oblivious to the threat of death and he will carry you through even that last enemy in Jesus Christ. Jacob, though he has never been weaker, as he approaches death's door, nevertheless, the Lord keeps his feet from stumbling and gives him a rock to stand on, even as he utters his last words. That rock is Jesus Christ's word to him at Bethel Luz. And that strong footing that Jacob has is his profession of faith. His word will endure. His covenant is stronger than the family sin that was atoned for in Christ's blood, that was dealt with in that moment at Bethel as well in chapter 35. It's stronger than, the de than death that came to threaten his wife and now is knocking at his own doorstep. Hallelujah. God will carry Jacob through. This is his profession, and he knows it with confidence. The Lord had said to him, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will give you a make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Everlasting possession. This is Jacob's profession. Forever, eternity is in view. An everlasting view is Jacob's perspective. He is not giving up to the despair of death, but instead he is professing faith beyond the grave. God's word will continue. A noble testimony in the face of death. Jacob's profession. Secondly, Jacob's inheritance or his estate. Verses 5 through 11. Jacob continues, And now, speaking to Joseph, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. Isn't that interesting? Jacob says, Your sons are mine, by the way. He says to Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Who are Reuben and Simeon? They're the oldest sons of Jacob ordinary sons of Jacob, by Leah, the first bride. But instead of them, there's an exchange of sorts taking place here. Jacob is claiming Ephraim and Manasseh for his sons, and in a sense, they're replacing Reuben and Simeon. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their... Uh, they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Pada and my sorrow... To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. Then there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. We read of that. Verse 8. And when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. He, Israel, Jacob, said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see Joseph, Joseph brought them near him. He kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. What does Jacob have to pass on by way of inheritance to the next generation? Well, from worldly accounting, not much. Jacob is not a pharaoh. He doesn't have great wealth and riches. He, is a tri he represents a tribal band of 70 or so that has been plagued with famine and, and has relocated in this land. He has not, nothing really to speak of by way of estate and holdings, the way we materially tend to think of great properties, rolling hills, flocks and so forth that span into the distance. And you can look out and say at your fire, this is all mine. Jacob could not say such things. Nevertheless, we see in this text that Jacob's inheritance was greater than the wealth of all of Egypt. 
Jacob's inheritance, his estate that he passes along supersedes Egypt. And what is it? It is the hope and promise of the eternal covenant. Not just the land that will come into possession of the covenant family in the future, which will happen, but indeed all of the earth that will come into the possession of the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, all the saved and all the true covenant people of God who will rule and reign with him and redeemed, as Jesus says in the Greek, palingenesia, or regenerated or new earth, that he himself prophesies. This is the course of redemption on into the future. This is the inheritance. Takes faith to believe, however. Jacob's relationship, I'm sorry, Egypt's relationship with death was far different. As we've referenced in recent messages, it's evidenced in the archaeological record. The pharaohs, as they approached death, their testimony, their profession could not be more opposite to Jacob's. Egypt, they had this extraordinary, lavish promises of posthumous glory, that is, glory beyond the grave, that they tried to secure for themselves by pyramids and riches and burial ceremony and so forth. Now, Jacob's son was a prince in this land, and he could have indulged himself in the riches and promises of Egypt to some degree. Joseph could have as well. And we think forward to Moses. He could have had a lot of this glory claimed for himself. He had that opportunity and the position that he enjoyed. But Jacob, Joseph, and Moses would have none of it. The inheritance and the estate of this pagan land of Egypt, let it burn. It is nothing but future loot of grave robbers to be buried with the fools who do not have any idea of the grace of God, which is the only way to survive the grave. If you're not in the covenant, if there's no assurance and security of eternal life, it doesn't matter the burial ritual. It's a fool's errand. Bury me in Machpelah, Jacob has exclaimed. In prior chapter 47, he has given instructions, right? He says, do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. Jacob's inheritance, he understood in the eyes of faith, he had the correct perspective, was superseded Egypt. It was not to be compared with earthly riches, material things, or that which this life alone can promise. Bury me in the place of my fathers, bring me my grandsons. Bring me my grandsons, they will not have the inheritance of Egypt, they will have my inheritance. You see, if you were Ephraim and Manasseh growing up as sons of the prince of Egypt in the courts of Joseph, you would be surrounded by, surrounded by the trappings of Egypt. You might be tempted to think, oh, isn't this amazing? I can have the glory of Egypt. My dad has a position of importance and influence in this land and in this uh, monarchy and in this great empire. But in this moment, Jacob, he recognized a superior inheritance. And he actually takes Joseph's grandsons and literally adopts them. Joseph's sons, his grandsons, and literally adopts them as his own. He says in this act, in this ceremony, that they were not to have the sacrilegious excess of the foreign land. They are not to place their faith in the possessions and the inheritance that Egypt can boast. No, his grandsons will have his inheritance the inheritance of the covenant patriarch, not the sacrilegious excesses of Egypt. He is anticipating in this act the calling of Moses. Hebrews 11, remember those temptations were there for Moses to indulge as well. Well, what does he do? He separates himself from the people of Egypt in this act of actually slaying an oppressor of his people. In so doing, he slams the door of favor in Pharaoh's court and consigns himself to a lifestyle of, of exile. And then later he returns to call his people or to lead his people to freedom. In Hebrews 11, his faith is described, verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For Moses, a man of faith, he knew that the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was greater than the fleeting pleasures of sin, the gold, the pyramid, the power of Egypt, the pyramids and power of Egypt. 
He considered the reproach of Christ, that is to suffer for the name of the Holy One, greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Wow. The testimony, the profession of Jacob, and the understanding of the wealth of the inheritance in Christ and in the promises of the covenant, both men testified to this superseding value over the material promises of this world. Think about that. Young people, in the hearing of my voice today, many of you are, ra- are being raised in a Christian home. It may not be a rich home. You may not be growing up in a mansion. You may not be given a brand new fancy car on your 16th birthday or anything like that. And some of you may be tempted to uh, covet the riches and the treasures and the promises of this world. Remember the testimony of Jacob and the testimony of Moses. You have a greater gift and a greater blessing and greater riches in your Christian upbringing than all the treasures this world can boast. All those things like in the days of the pharaohs will eventually gather dust and will be the curious you know, there'll be the curious discovery of a future archaeologist who says, what the heck is this kind of vehicle here buried in the sands of Cross Lake, Minnesota, or what, what have you. They will dig up the uh, evidence of a prior civilization who wasted time and money building an empire for themselves at the cost of what is most important, the promises of the covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ that ushers you beyond the grave into the glorious riches of eternity. Streets paved with gold, the foundations of that city, 12 gemstones, reaching high into the sky, these pictures in the Bible, extravagant in its wealth and glory and beauty, preaching to us this truth, that that which is promised in the covenant so far supersedes, is greater than, is more valuable than what is promised in this life, that only a fool would trade the short-term pottage Remember Jacob's brother Esau for the birthright of eternal glory. The short-term pottage of earth's riches should not be traded for the birthright of eternal glory. This is the inheritance. This is the estate that Jacob passes on. He does so confidently. Bring me my grandsons. I will adopt them as my own. They will have the double portion inheritance that would otherwise go to my firstborn. Jacob, in this act, he recalls God's the history of his family. There's a historical prologue in this kind of covenant framework where he remembers the occasion of Rachel's death and passing. As he does so, he appeals to the honor of the covenant bride and recognizes his faith is now evident that the legacy of his family will continue even though death would otherwise seem to interrupt it. This inheritance will endure through her grandsons and actually Now, after this moment, Ephraim and Manasseh can now call Rachel, not their grandmother, but their mother. They have just been adopted and received an inheritance and the patriarchal blessing from their father now, their adopted father, Jacob. Isn't this interesting? There's a double portion status that the eldest would typically get of inheritance. That is to say, let's say you had five children. You would take your inheritance and divide it by six, and then two portions would typically go to the oldest. This was a way of dividing the inheritance because the eldest in a family in this typical situation would have more responsibility, in particular taking care of their aging parents as they approach death and so forth. Well, something unique and interesting happens here. Two are disinherited from the uh, firstborn portion. And that would be the first two sons, Reuben and Simeon. But in their place, adopted grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, will now receive the firstborn portion. Verse 5, these are mine, Jacob says, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And you recall without time to turn there, the sin in Jacob's household disqualified some of his sons from receiving this allotment or inheritance. Reuben had defiled his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi had committed cruel acts and slaughtering, breaking covenant relationships with their neighbors. Judah, the fourth oldest, 
he would continue in the legacy of Jesus Christ, uh, which is an incredible grace that God would continue the lineage of the Messiah through Judah, the fourth son, also undeserving. But as far as Jacob goes and the inheritance physically is concerned, this will be given, will be granted to his grandsons. Now in this adoption ceremony, considered his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. This is Jacob's estate. This brings us to our final point today. A noble testimony in the face of death, Jacob's profession, Jacob's estate, and finally Jacob's legacy. What of this curious detail? So you see the picture, do you not? So Jacob is sitting there, eyes dim with age. On his right hand, his right hand is here and his left hand is here. Joseph facing him uh, arranges his sons, the eldest at his left, Jacob's right, the youngest at his right, Jacob's left. The idea being, and we see this more clearly in the text as we continue to read, as these sons approach, the right hand of greater blessing would be upon the eldest. But what happens? Now, Jacob can't really see much. He can't uh, discern between the two. But in the providence and the sovereignty of God, as the sons approach, Jacob crosses his hands. And the greater blessing is extended to the younger and the lesser blessing to the elder. What does this remind us of? Is this not the very thing that God promised Rebekah would happen with her two twin boys? In, back in Genesis, before Jacob and Esau were born, it was prophesied to her that the elder shall serve the younger. And there was a crossing of the hands, so to speak, when the blessing from Isaac then was passed on to the next generation. This is testimony in these details of an extraordinary son. One was chosen that perhaps was not the one that everybody thought most likely. But nevertheless, the sovereign purposes of God are illustrated in that he will choose the covenant son of his choosing for blessing and promise in the future. This pattern is seen again and again. Israel says we want a king like the rest of the nation and the people's choice is the tall head and shoulders above the rest Saul. But who is God's choice? Who is his anointed one? Well, kids, you remember, they go to Jesse's house, and Jesse says, I have a lot of good candidates for king here. I have some strap, strapping young sons. And so he brings his son forth. Uh, no, that's not the right one, Samuel says. One by one by one until he's run out of sons. Is there no one else? Well, the youngest, the one that no one thought of, is in the field tending the sheep. Go and get him. So they bring him. Who is this, kids? Uh, Jesse's youngest son. What's his name? David, that's correct. David is chosen, the extraordinary covenant son who will carry forward the lineage. Jesus was not recognized by many. He was a man who was not impressive to look at to most. He was overlooked by the powerful and elite of the day. The kings from the east could recognize him because they saw his star, and by faith they follow it to the place of his birth. But when they came, they didn't find anyone in royal robes. They found the toddler son of a poor family. Yet what did they do? They bowed before him and they gave him what he deserved. This king of glory who stooped low, this extraordinary covenant son, unrecognized without, to those without the eyes of faith, nevertheless was deserving of their worship, their gold, their frankincense, and their myrrh. And this picture of God and his sovereignty anointing an extraordinary covenant son is carried forth, this pattern, all the way through Scripture from moments like foreshadowing it in the past as we read of today all the way to its fulfillment in Christ. This brings us to Jacob's closing blessing and prayer. In the past, I've not considered this blessing very closely, and it may not be two verses that you have memorized, but listen to how beautiful it is. This is Genesis 48, 15 and 16. And he, that is Jacob or Israel, blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This is Jacob's legacy, prophesied his through his patriarchal blessing that will continue beyond him. There's an extraordinary son that's pictured in the crossing of the arms who will carry forth this birthright legacy, that his name will continue, that the multitude will grow in the midst of the earth. Three things that uh, stand out to me in Jacob's prayer. Sovereign shepherding, redeeming angel, 
and worldwide multitude. Just touching upon these briefly, perhaps more in a future message, Jacob says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. This is amazing. Jacob is testifying once again in this noble testimony in the face of death, his relationship to the Lord who revealed himself to him at the top of the ladder at Bethel Luz. This, the Lord, so to speak, came down the ladder in a sense to Jacob and guided him through. Guided him through his entire life. You could do a word study on how many times the Lord promised that I will be with you. We've come to call this the Emmanuel principle. What does Emmanuel mean? Kids, do you remember God? That's right, God with us. Jacob received this promise of God with him to attend his way. God did not promise no trial, no hardship, no testing. God did not promise no physical death would stand in between him and his promises. But God promised that no matter the trial, the test, or even death, that God would be with him and carry him through. Emmanuel, God with us, can shepherd us through an explosive, violent, vengeful relationship with an estranged brother, Jacob and Esau. God, the great shepherd, the Emmanuel, God with us, can carry us through a a horrible relationship with the father-in-law who seeks to exploit us for his own personal gain. That would be Jacob and Laban in Paddan Aram. God can shepherd us through horrible family experiences, including the apostasy of children and idolatry that can then be confessed and repented of return and to reestablish a covenant in Genesis chapter 35. The shepherding God with us promise of the abiding presence of Emmanuel can carry us through even death itself when we're sick and we're blind. And I don't know if you'll make it to 147, but whatever year you might be, when the Lord calls you home, nevertheless, Emmanuel, God with us, can shepherd us through. This is the noble testimony of Jacob in the face of death. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, was first uttered in so many words in Jacob, long before it was written by David, his covenant son to come in Psalm 23. The angel has redeemed me from all evil. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. The angel who has redeemed me. What a profound phrase. Angel can quite simply to the messenger of God. In John 1.51, Jesus reveals himself as the fulfillment of Jacob's dream in Genesis 28. From now on, he says to Nathan, you will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus, the messenger sent from God the Father, in this sense is the angel, the sent one, if you will. And this is the sent one who can redeem. Jacob is speaking in messianic terms, prophesying of a sent one, of a messenger who will redeem, that is to buy back, to pay for sins, to establish the covenant, to secure the promises into the future. An angel, a sent one who will redeem from all evil. May that one, the great shepherd, the great redeemer, bless these boys, my sons I now adopt and bequeath my inheritance to in this ceremony. And then finally, a worldwide multitude. In them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Did this come to pass? Not only did it come to pass in remarkable detail through the course of the Old Testament scriptures on into the new, but Jacob's prayer of blessing is coming to pass even today. Here we are, saints, gathered today, In the name of Jesus Christ, and who are we? We are the spiritual lineage of Jacob. We have been adopted. We have been grafted in. The covenant promises of the people of God are ours. And isn't this a surprising crossing of the hands of blessing? Another way to put this, can you relate to Ephraim and Manasseh at that moment? You certainly can. You, a Gentile born thousands of years after this promise, outside of the ordinary circumstances of covenant blessing, the gospel somehow reached you and you were adopted to be an heir of the blessings and promises of Abraham, the gospel given in this seed form that came true in Christ, the son of Jacob, has been granted to you. And in so doing, you are an unlikely adopted heir of Jacob, so to speak. And you join, therefore, as a believer, the great multitude of those of the people of God that are being gathered from the four corners of the earth. We are Israel in the sense the covenant people of God receiving 
uh, the grace of the covenant in Jesus Christ. Now, furthermore, just one other application. On the 29th of this month, we will hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth to the far corners of the earth, even the corners of Ethiopia, when our brother Mercy will give this mission report. The Ethiopian corners of the earth are testifying to the fulfillment of Jacob's blessing. A worldwide multitude is being gathered to worship Jesus. We, his people, this side of the incarnation, have experienced greater assurance still of the shepherding hope. Emmanuel, God with us, has been born a man. The second person of the Trinity has died to pay for our sins and secure our covenant hope. In him, we call Christ our Father, and we are adopted heirs of the testimony and the inheritance, the estate of our forefathers in the faith. This is the fulfillment of the Emmanuel promise. This is God shepherding his people yet today. The significant son has been born that the, all of the chosen ones before pointed to, like Jacob, like David, like Ephraim and Manasseh, and those who carried forth this lineage in physical families of hope and a coming Messiah, the significant covenant son, the one, the Savior, the Messiah, has been born in the fullness of time. He is mankind's, if you will, redeeming angel, Jesus Christ. He was introduced to us, or to Joseph, his father, whose father's name, by the way, was Jacob, in another dream thousands of years later, Matthew 1, 20 through 23. He would be born to die, he would rise again, he would ascend and he would secure the legacy of the faithful in glory forever and ever without end. Praise to Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of Jacob. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the glories of the covenant revealed in Jesus Christ that are available to us in such beautiful shades as we see your word unfolding. To the degree that it has been rightly divided, may you etch it upon our souls today so that we might grow in confidence and in life's deepest trials, and even at death's door, that our profession may be strong, that we would have a noble testimony in the face of death, our profession in Christ alone, our estate being the inheritance of godliness passed on to our children of those who you might give us opportunity to preach the gospel to, and the legacy of Christ then continuing to yet another generation as you raise up godly families to raise their children who will raise their children and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord until the coffers of glory are full with the great harvest of the end of the age. And you welcome all the saints you have redeemed through Jesus Christ to worship you forever without end. We thank you, Lord, for this glorious privilege and opportunity. Write these words upon our souls as we close in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.